But the reality is whether we talk about it or not, the neurological impact is still going on. And oftentimes trauma impacts our ability to have the deep relationships and the deep connections that we long for. I think healing is a very complex process that you know really requires that spiritual existential insight. And you know, and as we talk about this from a faith-based perspective, it shows that those who, you know, even in the field of psychology, evidence-based research shows individuals that have a faith, have a belief system, are capable of recovering. And we know that's because of that atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because it heals all levels, right? It's not just there when we've made a mistake. It's there when others have made a mistake. It's there when we have misunderstanding. It's there when we're confused and lost. And so, yeah, the process of healing can be painful, but when we clean a wound, then the wound can heal. Another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I can't wait to share this one with you because I love when we can take something that someone does professionally, you know, from the secular world, and I love when we can combine it with our religious observance. We're talking all about trauma in this episode, and I hope that it is as beneficial for all of you as it was for me as I was able to visit with Dr. Christy Kane. I highly encourage you to check out the book that you'll hear us talk about. Uh, additionally, some great nuggets about uh, the kind of positions that we should p- be putting our ecclesiastical leaders in, and also the situations that we should not be putting them in. And most especially, um, for those of you that may be struggling, I hope that you can find someone that you can connect to, uh, whether that be an ecclesiastical leader or a professional counselor or a friend or someone, so that you can get on the road to healing. It's possible. And that is the hope that I love that comes from this episode of the Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and uh, I'm excited to see where the adventure of this episode goes. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Christy Kane, uh, who, as, as, uh, as we introduce her here, specializes in trauma. So... We start with trauma and we probably think, okay, I know what that is. Oh, I've been through traumatic experiences and we all sort of couch it in that. Uh, But I'm excited to talk about healing through trauma, excited to talk about what even trauma is and maybe what it isn't, and and how maybe there's an intersection and a crossplay from traumatic experiences that can occur within our uh, religious observation. Dr. Kane, welcome to the Cultural Hall. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, we're going to dive full into that topic, but I always like to give people the opportunity to get to know our guests just to kind of on a personal level uh, at the beginning. So I would be curious to know, uh, tell me where you were raised, w- where you're from, some of, some of that uh, just general information. Yes, um, I wa- I had the opportunity of being raised in the greatest state, no, um, jokingly, um, but Idaho. <laughs> I was born and raised in Idaho. Um, My father is an underground miner, which not very many people can say. And uh, my mom worked retail. So growing up, actually as a kid, I spent a lot of time underground, pushing mining cars out of the mine and and doing a lot of camping. That was the big thing because my dad worked away from home. So when school would get out, mom would pack us all up and we would go live at the face of the mine. And so uh, 
I kind of have a fun childhood. Um, I, I was more of a, I guess you'd call it back then a tomboy. I spent my summers with a willow pole and a fishing hook and uh, going in and out of mines and, and just being in nature. So it was a lot of fun as a kid. I have to so ask, uh, uh, underground mining, I, I feel uh-huh. like most, I mean, I, I guess there are those open face mines, but what it, what is it that is an underground miner? Like they, st- so they stay overnight? Wh- so my dad doesn't underground is where it's actually, you know, my dad would be two to three miles underground in a tunnel. Wow. So open pit, like the Kennecott here in Utah, um, that's just all exposed. Underground is a tunnel. And my dad would actually use eight by eight treated posts to hold up a mountain. You know, so it seems strange that you can burl, burl, burl a hole into a mountain and then frame it with these big, huge posts, but they, you know, sometimes they caved in, but uh, that's what he did. You know, he mined silver and gold and my, and, and so that's what I knew as a kid. Was there ever uh, those moments of like, cause there are partial cave-ins and we've heard nationally and internationally really about those stories where 10 people are trapped in the bottom and we have to get those people out. You know, my father had some near misses. I, I would claim that my heavenly father was watching over my dad a lot because he had several near misses that would have taken his life. He was injured quite a few times in the mine, um, whether it was a piece of equipment that exploded or a partial cave-in. Um, heck, in his 70s, he was involved in an explosion that burned him really bad, and he lost his hearing, but he recovered. Um, but I remember my dad telling me a story, so this might be kind of funny. I asked him once, I said, Dad, how do you know that a mine's going to cave in? And my dad said, she always warns you before she's going to blow, just like a woman. <laughs> and, she, and he said, the problem why we end up with cave-ins is sometimes miners don't pay attention because the mine will begin throwing small rocks before the big boulders come down. And when they should get out, sometimes they don't. Now, my dad's a hard rock miner. And a lot of the cave-ins you hear about are soft rock, which are coal mines. And that ground shifts so much more than the granite rock that my dad mined in. But sometimes he mined in pretty bad ground. Now, you painted the picture of a, of a pretty kind of a childhood romance, childhood romantic, uh, you know, the willow pool, pool and sitting by the lakeside and all that. Uh, how come you didn't decide to follow in uh, dad or mom's footsteps and, and do retail or, or head to the mine? It's a hard life. You know, when I was a kid, my dad made really good money. But then when the economy goes south, mining and gold and silver go down to nothing. And so, you know, my parents barely got by. You know, we never went without. But um, growing up in that environment, I was like, I'm going to college. Like, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to repeat how hard I watched my parents work for really just almost minimum wage. It just wasn't something I wanted. And so your mind was turned instantly to mental health? No, you know, my undergraduate was political science at BYU. Um, I actually wanted to be an attorney. I love, I grew up in a very patriotic family. Like you stand up when that flag goes by, you show respect for those who serve. Being in a patriotic family, it's interesting. I have one son who's a police officer and another son who's training to be a chaplain in the United States Army. So I grew up in that love of the constitution, love of America. So my undergraduate was actually poli-sci pre-law and I was headed to law school and then kind of Plans changed. I got married and decided I wanted to stay home with my kids. And Utah only has full-time law school. And I was a little bit older when I got married. And so I switched it and did a master's and a doctorate in psychology because that had been my minor anyways. 
So I like both, but you know, I, I tell myself, oh, one of these days I'm going to go back and get a JD. And then I think about writing all those papers and I go, yeah, no, <laughs> you know, I, it's just a, I don't think so. We'll see. Maybe in the next life, I'll get my Juris Doctrine. Now, you talk about getting married a little bit later, and I always think that's curious when we when we couch it within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like, later for some is 22, and later for some is like 30 or so. Tell me about, uh, like, meeting your husband and, and what that, when that, and what that was like. So later for me was 25, you know, and we were, I was a return missionary, he was a return missionary, and Unfortunately, at that time, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it in the culture, you know, at 2021, you might have been considered an old maid. And uh, I had gone on a mission, come home, graduated from college and uh, and then got married. Um, I know today the national averages are changing, even within the culture of the church. We're going into the late 20s and early 30s. And in some aspects, I see a benefit of the maturity because oftentimes a young person getting married hasn't really become who they are, especially if you look at it from the neurological development of the brain. You know, we know a female brain is at the mature level of about 22, 23, but a young man about 24, 25. And so, you know, I know there's a tug of war back and forth between that. But if you look at the divorce rates and you look at some of the compounding issues that we see sometimes when people get married so quickly and don't get to know each other or haven't matured. And so in some aspects, I think a little bit older brings some benefit um, into that marital process because it's not easy. I mean, the hardest relationship and most beneficial relationship that any person will have is their marriage. How was it you met your husband? Um, I had, I was just completing and graduating from BYU and he had one year left and we ended up, I ended up moving and ended up being in his ward. Mm. And so um, someone casually mentioned him in a meeting. Um, he had been the elders quorum president. And uh, now I should say I'm divorced at this time in my life, but I don't have any negative regrets on that process. Um, Bob and I had a, he's a good man. There were just some issues and, and we didn't have a, a divorce that was destructive to our kids. But um, someone had mentioned casually, they were worried about his activity. And I happened to be serving in a state calling and, and showed up at his apartment to say, Hey, you know, hi, I'm here to introduce myself. And well, long story short, we ended up getting married. So, and you have those couple of kids. So, uh, you, you decide very consciously, uh, with what you're studying to be intentional with that plan, right? That you could study what you're studying so that you could be able to work, uh, and be able to have the family at home. So what, what is it in particular that attracted you to the mental health field? You know, I have a, I had a really amazing several mentors in my life. And I should mention, I have three children. My other daughter is in Germany, serving in the mental health area, taking care of it's, it's, it's funny. Um, my son-in-law does counseling for soldiers in Ramstein. And my daughter was helping the victims of domestic violence for the family soldiers in Ramstein. So we have this whole, I don't know why we have this whole helping in the mental health, um, you know, military area. It's just kind of interesting. I had three mentors in my life that really impacted me. Um, I met Carolyn Rasmus my freshman year of college, and she came and spoke and did a devotional at Rick's College, and she had her doctorate. And I was asked to escort her around because I served in a student body office at Rick's College. And after visiting with her and just listening to the things she was getting to do in her life, I remember thinking... I want that life. I, I want that degree of education. And then 
I met a lady by the name of uh, Dr. Natalie Malovich, and she is a uh, clinical psychologist who practices um, primarily treating children. And I asked her once, I said, you know, Dr. Malovich, why did you choose your profession? And she said, you know, Christy, there's a lot of difficult things that people have to go through in this lifetime, but they should not have to go through it alone. And that was really impactful to me. And then um, Elaine Jack is uh, one of my, she's almost like my second mom, an amazing mentor. And something I loved about Sister Jack is whenever I was with her and she was around other people, everyone felt loved by her. Like she has this significant, amazing gift. And I thought, I want that. And I want to know that at the end of the day, maybe perhaps I helped a few people enjoy life a little bit better because there are so many hurts. There are so many dark moments. And unfortunately, you and I both know so many suffer in silence when they don't need to, you know, and I think even more so now, I was just looking at some research that showed that people are more alone today than they've ever been in the history of our world. I just saw a study coming out of Harvard that said that at one time, adults typically had four or five really good friends. And now they're lucky if they have one. And I hear from so many sisters within the church that they feel alone, which seems interesting when, you know, we have this Relief Society organization and, and we talk about all this ministering. And yet we live in these closed doors and these closed neighborhoods where the loneliness that people are feeling is just, it's a cacophony. It, it's a, it's a, an encasing, drowning process that we need to shift. One of the things that I love, and we've had the opportunity to visit with um, several in the mental health field here in the cultural hall, but one of the things that I love is there's a particular attribute uh, of about those who work in the mental health field that, that I feel like is maybe more like the Savior than the rest of us, which is not to put you up on a pedestal, but it seems like it seems like you you and colleagues like yourself are able to sit in that place where it's just like, no matter what, right? The, it's sort of the 99 and the one, and you're saying, where's the one? I'm, the 99's fine. I got this. I'm going to go find the one when we're talking about mental health. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I don't know if I'm seeking the one. Um, thank you for the compliment for all of us mental health people, though. I can say this. In my years of doing what I do, at the beginning of my career, there weren't as many people coming in with shattered faith. Hmm. And more and more on a daily basis, individuals come in and they're struggling in that place. And oftentimes I find that that struggle comes when they haven't processed through some of their own individualized turmoil. So oftentimes when, when they're suffering from, say, deep hurts, deep scars, it can get directed at other areas, right? Because we're trying to heal, but we don't know how. And so I'd say the biggest change in my career has been the shifting of why people come to see me. So, so maybe more appropriately put, uh, uh, you, the ability of mental health uh, folks to be able to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that, need, yes. that stand in need of comfort. Maybe that would be a, a little bit more appropriate. Yeah, I like said. how you say that. And, and I think that's what we do. I mean, I've just finished a book. It's called Fractured Soul Splintered Memories. And it really gives audience an in-depth, upfront look at what happens in the therapeutic office. Because when you talk about that mourning and understanding, 
we know that about 40% of the people who need to see a mental health professional actually go see them. So that leaves about 60% of those not. And sometimes it's that mystery. It's that unknown. Like, well, what really happens in a therapy office? Does it really work? Can I really benefit from it? And so this book, it gives a very personal, upfront, intimate um, guide between a therapist and a client as a client seeks to heal. And so I think that is the point of, of all of us, right? We're all seeking to heal. I, I can't think of a single person who at some point in their lifetime doesn't need to have someone take time to mourn with them, yeah. right? Yeah. Even the people that say, oh, I don't need that. I don't need to heal. I'm fine. Even those people yeah. are the people that, and maybe even more so, those people are the ones that need to heal. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about trauma. Uh, maybe okay. we're going to get real deep on what trauma is, what it isn't, and uh, and, and why we're talking so much more about it, uh, it seems, today. So we'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. A busy, full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to bestdjinutah.com. Why, that is me, Richie T., and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party, whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh Uh-huh. Texas? Yes. Point is, uh, you know, you, you throw shekels my way, I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the cultural hall mind blown if you are in need of a dj at all or someone in your family's getting married would like to be able to talk to me i would love to be able to talk to them it's best dj in utah.com imagine running a small business today it's challenging imaging and internet presence is an absolute must even with that you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe now imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I would encourage you to go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall if you would like to be a financial supporter of the Cultural Hall, a great way for you to pledge a monetary amount every month uh, so that you can be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where we have all sort of nerdy, tangential chat about the different things that happen in the episodes. And it's a great community to be able to connect with. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, now, Dr. Kane, Christy, uh, I, I feel like I've earned the Christy at this point. <laughs> That's great. Uh, trauma. It seems like now, maybe more than ever, um, in the mental health spectrum, we talk about trauma. So as you see it, what is trauma or what do we mislabel as, oh, it's traumatic, it's trauma, that maybe it's something completely different? So trauma, by definition, is any type of experience that creates neurological changes in the brain in a negative way. And when we think trauma, I think sometimes we forget there's a spectrum. We go from anxiety to panic attacks to that level of trauma to post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So we have a spectrum of trauma. And really, trauma 
is as individualized as the person who experiences the event and how their brain processes the event. So what might be traumatic for you may not be traumatic for others. Hmm. And so that's an important process to remember is not to label and say, oh, well, that wasn't traumatic because genetically our brains are all different. And the imprinting of experiences into our brain are different. Some people by genetics, by environment are maybe more resilient than others. And so the events can impact differently, but it's really a neurological change in the brain. More so now than ever before, thanks to fMRI imaging, we can look at a brain and we can see the impact of trauma in the brain and know that it's a biological level change. So as you work with individuals um, who have experienced trauma, I, to me, that feels like maybe one of the hardest things because I, I feel like as the human condition, there are a lot of us who will do whatever it takes to lean away from the trauma, to not have to talk about it, to not have to, you know, think about it, to not have to look at it, to not have to relive it, to just try and compartmentalize and leave it behind. And when we actually try and heal through it, that, that seems like that could be some of the hardest work to be done. It is. And, you know, like in the book, my book, The Fractured Soul Splintered Memories, they'll, you'll see how difficult it is to open those compartmentalized boxes and talk about trauma. But the reality is whether we talk about it or not, the neurological impact is still going on. And oftentimes trauma impacts our ability to have the deep relationships and the deep connections that we long for. I think healing is a very complex process that you know really requires that spiritual existential insight. And, you know, as we talk about this from a faith-based perspective, it shows that those who, you know, even in the field of psychology, evidence-based research, so to individuals that have a faith, have a belief system, are capable of recovering. And we know that's because of that atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because it heals all levels, right? It's not just there when we've made a mistake. It's there when others have made a mistake. It's there when we have misunderstanding. It's there when we're confused and lost. And so, yeah, the process of healing can be painful, but when we clean a wound, then the wound can heal. And people process trauma differently. Some people compartmentalize and you would never know that in the night, there's the darkness and the demons that they face, right? And there are others who openly, emotionally are daily facing it and not able to compartmentalize it. But either way, the healing is needed. And when you talk about the healing and you talk about like the imprints, the, the negative imprints that occur, it, it, and also the imaging, is it actual physical when people have experienced trauma? Like you can, like on an x-ray, when you see a fractured part of the brain? Is it, you know what I'm saying? Can, can, can you physically see this is the traumatic point on a brain scan? They can see a difference in the neurological current. If, if So when they look at brains in the fMRI imaging, it's almost like parts of the brain flatline because of the trauma. So they can actually see it. Um, the other thing that's really important to remember is that Trauma on a daily basis isn't seen necessarily in trauma, but it's seen in bipolar, 
It's seen in borderline personality disorders. Most of your personality disorders come from trauma. It's seen in our anxiety and in our depression. It's seen in our substance abuse. And so a lot of the mental health symptoms, the cause is trauma. And so the trauma has to be resolved. We can't just treat the symptoms. We have to resolve the trauma to help the symptoms go away. You know, it's kind of like if you have cancer, you can't just treat the symptoms. You have to treat the disease. You know, I'm not sure if you heard of the famous ACEs studies, but in the ACEs studies, there are long-term studies of individuals who grew up in rather hectic environments and how that impacted not only their mental health, but their physical health. And according to markers, they could show that individuals that had certain markers of trauma had higher rates of diabetes, cancer, hypertension, um, cardiovascular disease, shortened life expectancy. Many, many times when we're dealing with physical medical issues, the foundational root is mental health trauma. That is fascinating. Uh, to to, uh, to to know and to hear because what what I sort of extrapolate out of it too is that that some of these things that maybe we think that we couldn't heal when we talk about some mental disorders then if we could uh, uh, forgive the term attack the the trauma uh, and be able to heal from the trauma then are we able to be healed from some of those mental disorders yes many times when the trauma can be resolved the symptoms can um, dissipate wow, from wow. the mental issue now there are probably some mental issues and for some people that may not be healed in this lifetime and they may require healing in the next and you know i i don't understand that necessarily but i just know our brains are different you know it's it's also the reality of sometimes the largest process of trauma is self-forgiveness, mm -hmm. especially when the culture of the Althea's face. We know within the doctrine, all things have been forgiven by our, the atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's amazing how many individuals self-flagellate and struggle with that process of individual forgiveness which layers and intensifies the impact of the trauma, you know, especially like, so for example, in cases where there's been abuse, oftentimes the victims blame themselves and that blame is um, paralyzing to healing. So it's really important to understand the beautiful gift of that atonement in self-forgiveness. Um, many, many times I'll see individuals repetitively um, go to a bishop and repent of something or repetitively stand at the pulpit, you know, in testimony meeting and, and, and talk about mistakes or different things. And they struggle with the concept of, of divine forgiveness towards themselves. Now, you made a point, it seems, to mention that that might be a particular struggle within our faith. What do you think it is about our faith tradition that causes us to be a little bit harder on ourselves or a little less likely to forgive? You know, I think in some aspects... It's a Calvinistic play, but very strong in the LDS faith in the sense that instead of fully understanding that the atonement is a beautiful, amazing gift and not a punitive process, I think sometimes as members of the church, in order to forgive ourselves, we think we have to be punished enough. And so many times that inability to forgive is a, is a punishment process. Like when I've suffered enough, then I can be forgiven. And yet suffering is not necessarily the process 
of the atonement. It's the acceptance of our Savior's love and divine gift that he's given. You know, many times I hear the comment, we shouldn't feel shame, we should feel guilt. Mm. In my perspective, guilt and shame play the same. Many times I say we should feel remorse, not shame and not guilt, because remorse is that godly sorrow that allows us to forgive ourselves. But so many people get caught up in the punitive guilt shame process and, and, and think that the atonement must imply punishment in order to reach forgiveness. And no punishment is mandated. What's asking is the acceptance of the beautiful gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ. There also seems to be something within the LDS tradition that sort of eschews um, therapy in a, in a therapy room because we can figure this out, right? Between me and God, and and I can I can work this out. I can be able to work through these things. I don't need to go see a, a therapist. I don't need to see a counselor. Where do you think that comes from? You know, I think, and sometimes it was just the the confusion and the fear of perhaps what a mental health professional could or couldn't do, right? Oftentimes, perhaps members of the church are a little concerned to go visit with a mental health professional who may not be part of their faith. There's also that self-reliance all the time that's been taught. But isn't it wonderful to see the programs coming out by the church, like there's emotional wellness and all these different things, because even the organization of the church is recognizing that mental health is the number one issue impacting people today ahead of physical health issues. I think we still have that old pull myself up by the bootstraps. You know, for a long time, there was shame behind mental health. Like if you said you had cancer, people didn't ask you what you did wrong. Yeah. But if you had depression, you got asked, well, what's wrong with you? And I think as we know and look at mental health from more of a neurological foundation, we can get that shame out of the way. So I really talk to all of my patients when they come to see me about their brain and what's going on. So that helps to lift that shame. So they don't have to think there's something wrong with them or they don't have to think that they hide or they just have to get over it. I mean, how many times have we sometimes said to people, oh, just get over it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, we need to go through it because even in the process of the gospel, going through is growth. Getting over it does not plant roots, right? Yeah, yeah. And so there's that process. Also, I think one thing to bring up is I think many times we made the mistake of thinking we could go to priesthood leadership. I was just going to bring this up. Yeah. For mental health counseling. And I'm, you know, I did a article for LDS living that clarified when should you talk to a priesthood leader and when should you see a mental health counselor? And the reality is bishops need to get really good and stake presidents and other people that counsel not playing in that role. Sometimes priesthood leadership act in roles that they shouldn't. They need to be priesthood leadership and not mental health professionals. And also members need to stop putting their priesthood leadership or release society or young women, whoever in that role, they're there to support and comfort, but they're not trained mental health professionals. And even if they are, that's not their role. Mm -hmm. And so there's even rules, you know, there's laws that I can't treat a family member or a friend because of licensing. And so a bishop really can't see a member of his ward or a stake president. And so we really need to create those boundaries so that members feel comfortable going to see mental health professionals. 
that's just such a power a powerful point because we do we put these individuals in situations where some have the greatest of intention. They just want to help, right? That's why they're likely yes. called into those leadership positions, whether it be priesthood or you know within the Relief Society, and they just want to be able to help. But the fact of the matter is, it's like I always make the joke. It's like, yeah, but that guy's an accountant. You don't go to uh, you know you don't get your plumbing fixed by your accountant. You don't go to the bishop for a mental health concern. Right. And, and we need to get good at that. And um, we also need to re- get really good at recognizing how much trauma the culture of the faith causes, not the doctrine, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but many times the culture of any faith can create a lot of trauma and a lot of damage. And, and people need to a see that b back away from culture and seek for healing and understanding. It's also appropriate to ask your mental health professional if you want your faith to be part of your therapy. Hmm. You know, I ask all of my clients who come into my office and sit down if they have any type of religious belief and would they like to be that part of their therapy. And then I'm very respectful, whether they're Catholic or Jewish or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Hindu, then I seek to bring that in and be respectful. And a good mental health professional will allow you to do that. I want to take another break real quick. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk about how our religious observation, or certainly the culture within our religious observation, may be the cause of trauma. We'll do that coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, friends. Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. I get a lot of emails with feedback from customers. Here's one. Dear Dan, I just had the best experience ever. I bought a computer from Shane at your State Street store. I asked several what I thought were really stupid questions. Shane was super courteous and made me feel comfortable through the whole process. People need to understand how important it is to support a local company, especially when your experience is so good. PC Laptops really does love me. Signed, satisfied. I love hearing feedback like that. It really just gives me the chills. It's the whole reason why I got into the computer business in the first place. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop for as low as $7.99, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. That means if anything goes wrong, we're going to take care of you. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we really do love you. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember, if you're uh, ever reading a book, you're seeing a blog online, maybe you follow a social media channel and you think, you know what, that would be a great episode of the Cultural Hall, you can always send us, always send us an email. It's contact at theculturalhall.com and say, hey, we'd love for you to speak to like, well, people like Christy Kane, uh, who've been visiting with uh, author of the book Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma, uh, which, by the way, there will be a link to purchase that book in the show notes of this episode. Uh, you brought something up that I think is particularly curious and applicable within the conversation that we've had, certainly as we are here in the cultural hall. How might the culture of specifically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints create trauma? I'm glad you're going to talk about this. So in the book, the client that is being treated, a couple of things that this client in particular dealt with is one being divorced in the LDS church. And although many, many times the gospel says divorce is not a sin in the LDS faith, right? 
the culture many times implies that it is. Let me give you an example from this person's life and the story that I get to tell. She acknowledged that when the, you know, prior to being divorced, she was invited to backyard barbecues and invited to go to dinner with other couples. The divorce happened. Her husband left the ward, but she stayed in. And all of a sudden, there were no more invitations to backyard barbecues. There were no more invites to dinner with couples. There was a release from a calling, even though, you know, she there's divorce is not a sin in her mind, all of a sudden she wasn't worthy to serve. And so all of that layered in creating a lot of trauma for her feeling no longer accepted, isolated within the walls of her home when she was probably going through one of the hardest times in her life and needed to feel more included than any other time before. But the culture being so family-based and family-focused, all of a sudden found her on the on the outside looking in where before her divorce, she was accepted in the mainstream of the process Mm. that creates a lot of trauma for people. Also within the book, she'll talk about her journey of healing. Um, I, in the sense of trying to find herself and figure out where she belonged. I deal with many, many clients who have same sex attraction, who want to stay within the faith, but then the minute they, begin to talk about the fact that this is something they deal with, then all of a sudden they're labeled. All of a sudden they're no longer seen as that amazing person that they've always been seen as. Uh, We sometimes in a desire to get to know people, we want to help, but we don't know how to ask the right questions. Like my daughter, for example, it took her almost six years to have her first child. And repeatedly people would out of you know, wanting to care, say things like, so when are you going to start your family? Or do you not want children? Or are you going to have children? You know, I I ran into a lady who point blank just asked me, so, you know, is Carrie ever going to want to have kids? And I had to pause for a moment because I wanted to say something a little bit blunt, (laughs) but I just simply paused for a moment and said, my daughter can't have children. And We need to learn to change things instead of saying, are you married? Do you have kids? We need to ask things like, what kind of art do you like? What kind of books do you like to read? So that we're not inflicting trauma because we don't mean to, but yet those simple words say, oh, so Carrie has something wrong with her because she doesn't want kids, Mm. you know, and there's tender issues that cause deep pain that sometimes people don't want to talk about. And so there's ways to ask questions, include people. You know, why is it that a divorced person can't be invited to dinner with a couple? It's not like anything. I mean, I remember bringing up this conversation shortly after I was divorced and casually said, you know, divorced people still need to be included. And I'll never forget it. But a lady in my release society at that time said, so what do you want to be the second wife? And I, and I just paused and went, that's the problem. That's the culture. And so it's just being observant and mindful in the things that we say. Now, obviously, I understand and Carrie understood that people weren't trying to hurt her feelings. And so she was mature enough to be able to process through that. You know, it's so funny. She had one sister that come up, came up to her and said, I bet you get tired of people asking you when you're going to have children. And uh, she said, I've got a response for you. 
And I hope this works on your radio program. But the lady said, just tell them you were trying this morning, but it hadn't worked yet. <laughs> you know, and I was like, that's funny, you know. And so there's just just that need to be mindful that we can create harm when we didn't intend to, but we can talk about different things and we can be so much more inclusive than we are. You know, some of my very best friends are, are have same-sex attraction and they, some have chosen the lifestyle, some haven't, but they're beautiful, amazing people that I still go to dinner with. I still spend time with and I still value what they have to offer. What do you think that it is? Is it a fear that we, you know, that... You know, maybe their perspective will rub off on us. Is it a fear that, you know, I, I see this also in like the those that are having uh, what most people define sort of as faith crises as we sort of we sort of say, all right, you go ahead and figure out you. And if it that if that can work with who I am when you have figured your way through your journey, maybe we can work that out. Why can't we sit more with those people? I think it's fear. And for some people, I think it's not knowing what to say or how to say it. I think sometimes we desire not to offend. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. We as members of the church in our culture so desire not to offend that many times we offend. So for example, you get back in the Bible belt and I'm shocked the times I've flown there to speak at different conferences like I'll walk into a grocery store and they'll say something like, Jesus loves you. God's watching over you. And they're just open about, and they'll say it point blank. God doesn't want you to do that. And Christ doesn't want you to do And I look at them and think, we'd never say that in Utah. Like we're scared <laughs> to death to even mention it because we're afraid we're going to get judged. And yet we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We should be able to say to someone who's seeking to find their identity, Heavenly Father loves you. Whatever identity, we're here. We support you. You're, you're welcome. You know, silence sometimes can be quite offensive. And so we need to learn to have those conversations so that we don't offend through silence, but that we extend through love. I, I love learning about things like, you know, in my lifetime of being a clinician, it's hard to keep up with all the different uh, acronyms that kids are using for their identity right now. And I'll have people come in and say, I'm da 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 And I'll go, okay, I don't know what that means. Would you please enlighten me? Tell me what that means. I want to be respectful of, of who you are. And I'm happy to learn. And, and, and I'm not offended when they say, well, that means da 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 And I'd like you to call me this and that. And I'm like, okay, please correct me if I make a mistake. I'm going to do my very best. You're a wonderful person. And I'm excited to get to know you. Because there's so much about humans besides certain labels or certain identities and there's so much and so many ways we can connect it, it, yeah i think we create trauma through our culture and it, then people get hurt and leave is all trauma rooted in the same thing meaning uh, in what limited understanding because i am not a uh, you know a mental health counselor or, or um you know a psychologist or anything like that but i as i understand it the 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 principles or foundation of like addiction all kind of come from the same thing. Is it similar as we talk about trauma? So addictions play with the neurotransmitter dopamine. They And, and they all play with that, whether it's pornography, cocaine, various substances, um, video gaming. Trauma plays with neurological impact to the brain. And, and so it, it alters neurological pathways. And the reason it does that is because oftentimes when the trauma is experienced, there's an overload of neurotransmitters. 
because the experience shuts down receptors and overstimulates. And so what happens is it changes neurological pathways. You know, we used to believe the brain was solid by the time you were in your late twenties. We now know there's neurological plasticity. And so trauma creates neurological pathways of trauma, like synaptic um, neurotransmitter connections. And so it, it may happen in different parts of the brain, but it's still, it's still that neurological altering due to overstimulation. Like you might get way too much dopamine because the brain, the limbic system of the brain is the fight and flight part of the brain. And it processes the trauma to try to keep you safe. And so it, it sends out all these signals, which can be overwhelming to the brain. So the brain starts to shut down. So like, Police officer will tell you if there's been a severe enough accident and someone's traumatized enough, they can't even remember their name because the brain is designed when the trauma has been so bad, it shuts down everything but the brainstem and the brainstem just controls the heartbeat and your breathing and your ability to move. But so when we start to feel trauma, the left, um, the left hemisphere of the brain starts to shut down. That's our reasoning part of the brain. And the right hemisphere starts to um, increase that feeling because our limbic system is trying to get us safe, trying to get us to run away or to fight. And so it changes the brain. It's funny because popular media or, you know, the, the things that we see in TV and movies would teach me that in some cases, like you're talking about with those systems within our brain, the way that we're naturally created, we sort of block these things completely away until we have some sort of life experience that brings back all this trauma. And then um, because we didn't heal, we, because we didn't, you know, find our way through it, we just sort of avoided it, whether naturally or, or by choice that, that then it comes back again and again, even, even maybe that we don't know it, you know, maybe some sort of child childhood, you know, abuse, if people are listening to this and, and some of the things which you've said uh, that those that have experienced trauma, uh, they, they're like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, that is that is me. That is something that that I do experience regularly. How how um, whether. Well, yeah. How how would they engage at this point? How do they know who to go see if they need to go see someone? Um, what what the conversation is like if maybe they don't. If, if they don't know what the trauma is or have never spoken about it? it? It can never, ever be dangerous to go visit with a mental health professional. I tell everybody to err on the side of caution. I think all of us can benefit from sitting down and visiting with the mental health professional who can give us a different perspective. Now, I'm going to have to own this because when I first went through my master's program, so part of your PhD and your master's program is you have to go see a counselor. Well, I missed the fine print of that in my master's program. And I got ready to graduate. And uh, the dean of the college called me and said, hey, Christy, where's your hours for therapy? And I turned in my 900 hours for my, you know, that I had done as a, an intern. And, and I said, I already did them. And he goes, no, 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 your hours. And I go, I already did them. I turned them in. And he goes, no, 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 your hours. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you have to have gone to see a therapist for 12 times. And I said to the dean of the college, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to go see a therapist. And he said, well, then you're not going to graduate. And I'm like, that's not fair. I'm like, I mean, I had this huge, I was so mad. Like I thought, oh my gosh, you think there's something wrong with me. I'm not going to go see a therapist. 
Well, pretty much the dean of the college made it clear, either you get your hours in or you're not graduating. So I called a friend and said, I need to see a therapist. And I have no reason I ever need to see a therapist. And this is terrible. And she gave me a name. And it was one of the best things I did because I, I, you know, I got to see myself in ways I never saw before. So I say to everybody, it never hurts to talk to therapists. Now, the way you find the right person is to ask friends, you know, who have you seen? Who do you recommend? And you can interview that therapist because it's really about relationship. In this book that I've written, the people who read it will see there's this beautiful dance between this therapist and the client. You have to feel connected to that person that you're seeing because you're going to share very intimate, personal things, right? Mm -hmm. And you can ask that therapist, do you have a background in treating trauma? What do you specialize in? As much as that therapist is going to interview, like when people sit down in my office, I say, I'm going to interview you today, but you better be interviewing me. And I'm not going to be offended if you say at the end of this interview, Dr. Kane, I don't think I can work with you because you need to find that person that fits you like a glove because it needs to be a beautiful dance. And that's the thing I loved about telling this story is really it's this amazing relationship between a client and the therapist that allows a person to heal. And isn't that the gospel? Mm-hmm. It's an amazing relationship with our savior and ourself that allows progression and healing. And so you can never hurt to go talk to a therapist and ask, you know, people can call me, people can come see me. I just opened up a new clinic in Highland. And so it's just taking off the shame and recognizing, you know, I love the fact that within the scriptures, a foundational process is counsel. You know, we say things like constructive criticism. And I said to a friend the other day, there's no such things as constructive criticism, but there is constructive counsel. So we need to shift and recognize at all times in our lives, we can benefit from constructive counsel and insight from the eyes of someone else. And mental health professionals are trained. Now, I can't say all of them. I'd go see, you know, there's a lot of mental health professionals and some I'd probably never see. And many I would. The The name of the book is Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories. It's unlocking the boxes of trauma. Is it a true story or based in truth? It's a true story. So there yeah. is an actual individual that you're talking about that with the different experiences and the journey that takes place within it actually occurred. Yes. The names have been changed to protect the confidentiality. And so I was entrusted to tell this story. Um, I'm not the clinician, nor am I the client. They wanted to maintain their anonymity and confidentiality. So they asked me to share the story. That's amazing. Uh, one of the other things that I want to pick up, I think it's so interesting, uh, almost starting where or ending where we began, but where you talk about the Savior and that one of the names of the Savior, you know, um, is Counselor right? Yes. And that we, we have that opportunity to be able to counsel with the Lord and also to be able to counsel with the, those whom the Lord has brought into our life to say, hey, here to help you. I have to share this with you because I thought it was particularly interesting as uh, I'm preparing to be able to visit with you today. Um, someone reviewed you online, and I absolutely loved what they said. Uh, they said, an unbiased therapist is not easy to come by. And Dr. Kane can be blunt, which may be hard for some people to handle, but for me was exactly what I needed. She cares and works hard to find angles that make sense and work, and she's there to facilitate your own healing, not to tell you how to do it. And I think that's one of the most important things 
that that I want to take away from this is that you know, as we talk about destigmatizing what a counselor is and what a counselor is, it like they it, it's not a it's not a magic session, it's not voodoo where they go here we go and now I'm gonna I'm gonna fix you. It's work that we each individually engage in, but that healing is possible. Yes, and I tell my clients, and I am blunt. I don't know where you found that review, but that was a nice review. Um, most of your healing will take place outside my office. I am here to help you get to where you want to get to. So let me tell you something I ask all my clients, and I think this would be good for your listeners to think about. Whenever a person comes into my office and sets down, the first thing I ask them is, I want you to think about if this is our very last session and you're going to walk out of my office. I want you to leave saying my therapy was worthwhile with Dr. Kane because I got here. Tell me where here is, and then we can help create that healing journey. And so many times people come into my office and say, I have no idea. And that's my very first assignment is then go home between now and our next session and decide where you want to get to. Because our journey of healing, our journey of life is our choice. That's the beautiful thing of free agency in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every single one of us should sit for a moment and say, when it's all done, I want to know I got here. What does that look like? That's a, that's amazing. And now I, now I want to hit pause and start writing some things out that are coming to my brain. There are three questions, uh, Dr. Kane, that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you at this point. The first question is, is do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Prior to the pandemic, I had a calling. I don't think I have one now because I think they're no longer having this, but I was on the health and hope committee for the stake. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? You know, in my lifetime, the joke in every ward I've ever been is, um, so Christy, when will you be the gospel doctrine teacher? And I have to admit, I do love teaching gospel doctrine. The final question that we ask everyone and ask that you interpret it however you may, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? That it gives me hope on a daily basis, no matter how difficult life is, because Mental health professionals carry a lot yeah. because we carry the pains and the hurt of other people. And so when I hear some of the tragedies that I hear, I have hope and I know that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all will be well. And so I think for me, my faith gives me hope in all things. Dr. Christy Kane has been my guest. Uh, the name of the book is Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. Link for it in the show notes at theculturalhall.com. Uh, Dr. Kane, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat On the back row, we really gotta go On the Culture Hall Show